You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It's July 29th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And um, I was uh, wondering uh, whether anybody had any questions that they wanted me to talk about. Uh, AMA, ask me anything, or whether I should just launch into the uh, the topic for tonight, which is just the conclusion of the of the sixteen stages. We got through stage ten uh, in the last uh, talk, and. Um, I, I thought that we would uh, do the last six in this one. I don't go too heavily into the last six stages because uh, it's a, it's beyond where most people's practices are. So it, it becomes theoretical, which in some ways is less helpful than uh, really trying to uh, make sense out of experiences that you've had that have arisen from your practice. Um, but. So I'm just launching in. That's the idea, right? I like to. Uh, I like the manual of insight that was written um, um, by Mahasi Sedao, and the translation was uh, that I like is by the Vipassana Metta Foundation. Steve Armstrong was the lead editor on there. Um, some of you probably know that I I have gone uh, a few times to Myanmar and sat with U Indika Sedao, and he was. Um, one of the uh, consultants on translating sections of this, and also the um, uh, the Venerable Veranani, one of the nuns that was at the center, uh, was responsible for the citations with uh, another woman named Veranani. And so um, I find it to be quite a useful text. And... Um, And I, I think I've said this uh, or I usually say it because it's part of what happened, but my experience um, and the reason that I'm drawn to this particular map or Dharma map is this description of, of how to proceed toward enlightenment uh, appeals to me is because before I knew the map, before I'd even read it, my experience of practice led me through it in a way that it was really required virtually no translation in terms of my experience. I remember when I first reported the experience um, of uh, fruition to uh, Shinzen, he was dubious about it. Um, and so it took actually uh, the experience of reporting it on multiple occasions over a couple of years and also the the changes that he observed, I would think. Um, and so really what we begin to understand as we, we uh, dive into the, this uh, uh, movement toward enlightenment, if you're practicing Theravada uh, techniques, you're likely to have the insights that come from practicing those techniques. And you can begin to understand and organize the practice in such a way that it uh, takes you through these uh, cycles. 
So you come into it, you begin with the insight around uh, exploring uh, sensing experience and mind. You explore conditionality, how the mind moves uh, to object, to object, to object, and how it collects that uh, uh, those uh, snapshots of mind moments to create the experience that we think of as reality, but we come to know as conceptual reality from the ultimate sensing experience, the undifferentiated, unattached, unfixated sensing experience, and then uh, creating this uh, working model and really projecting it outward. I was driving on the freeway the other night, and for the I'd never seen this before. It was quite interesting. Um, the whole side of the car was an animated billboard. And you could see that there were these little cameras mounted on the, the handles of the car. And the, the anamorphic lens was such that uh, even though the whole side of the car was illuminated just from one point, uh, it distorted in such a way that it looked like a, a perfect picture on the side of the car. Um, I wonder uh, what the wisdom of having uh, animated advertisements on the side of cars while you're driving on the freeway. <laughs> but we've never been a society where we wanted to impede uh, consumption in any way. Uh, so that uh, as you're changing lanes, you can abandon driving down the freeway at 65 miles an hour and attend to the animated advertisement for a service uh, nearby. Um, once we move out of the, this uh, conditionality, uh, um, and if you go into the manual, uh, you'll see that each of these insights is supported by uh, an in-depth explanation and also the different things to, to look for. You move into the understanding of the nature of the three marks or characteris characteristics of existence, uh, anita, nacha, and dukkha, uh, not-self, uh, impermanence, and uh, unsatisfactoriness. Um, <clears throat> So you, you you touch into this, this introduction. How tightly do you grip to this idea that there's a self, there's a you that's separate from the experience of sensing that navigates everything? Um, how tightly to grip on the idea that you can find a sense of permanence, of uh, security uh, in some way? And how tightly do you grip on to the nature that you're in a body that's going to live forever and be vital and uh, uh, active? One of the things that's so interesting about this is that as you examine it, of course, it's perfectly obvious that none of that is true. Uh, the self-experience changes all the time. The, your mood changes all the time. Uh, nothing lasts, nothing has ever lasted, and you've always had known that experience of nothing lasting, which doesn't keep you from uh, grabbing onto it. And and you live in a body that's been growing when you're young, of course, it's just improving. So you have this idea that uh, the longer you, you are alive, the longer it grows, uh, the more it will improve. Um, your Your brain develops, your capacity to experience the world develops. 
uh, as you hit puberty, the the whole world of uh, sensual desire opens up in a way that's different than in childhood. The brain really gets sharp and um, and then you hit your mid-20s and you reach the, the top of your capacity for cognitive function. You're the most vital that you're going to be. And, and you sort of soar into this belief that this could go on uh, forever. It would be awesome. And then you hit your late 20s and the body switches and begins to age. And then there's that sort of adjustment to um, that process. In the beginning, of course, it's fairly slow and you can adjust to it. The change in energy still leaves you with a lot of it. Uh, and then you go into a kind of stasis which holds for 10 or 15 years and you can sort of uh, learn to navigate in that way. And then uh, in the beginning of the 50s or mid 50s, there's another change in the energy level uh, drops precipitously and the aging um, process accelerates at a at a rate that's uh, alarming. How old do you think you're going to live to be? Um, when I was in my 20s, I thought, ah, I'll live to be 100. Um, but most people don't live beyond their 70s. And in fact, in our country, because of the, the nature of our for-profit healthcare system, uh, life expectancy is actually shrinking rather than expanding. You have to get both longevity genes, one from each of your parents, in order to live beyond that. And if you get both of them, you tend to live into your 80s or 90s, but not very many people live beyond that. Um, I, I, uh, four, I, I think the statistic I read was four people in a generation live to be a, uh, into their 110s or 120s, four people out of the entire global generation uh, live that long. So the odds are long. You could win the lottery eight times before you lived that long. <laughs> so. Um, Sasaki Roshi, I think he was a 104, 105, something like that. I went to his 100th birthday at Rinzai Ji. It was, um, it was lovely. Um, uh, I don't, if you've not been there, there's a, a sitting hall which was completely packed out and then there's a steps that go down into a garden and the garden was also completely packed with people and they'd set up chairs and the chairs were all full and there was a standing room only. Uh, and he, he talked uh, from the dais um, in his usual manner. We had gone quite a lot up to see uh, uh, Teishos, which are the, 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 the Dharma talks in in Zen, uh, both at Rinzai and also up at uh, Mount Baldy. And then uh, what was very pleasant about that is that he wandered around the garden just taking people's hands and thanking them for coming to the birthday celebration. 
and he was somebody who could do Shaktipat. Shaktipat is where a, a look or a touch or something like that creates this uh, intense bliss storm inside of you. And so that was a very pleasant experience to have, which I'd had before with him a few times. Um, when uh, you touch into this uh, sense of not self, sense of impermanent, sense of living in this body that is temporary, uh, then you move into this stage of uh, examining arising and passing both at a macro level but then at this micro level where each sensing experience arises and passes uh, and as you get into that vibratory energy of that arising and passing it begins to dissolve the experiences of solidness and it begins to dissolve the barriers between sense gates and then it begins to dissolve the barriers between the perception of inside and outside and when you get into the, this stage or disillusion, um, you're super concentrated. Everything is vividly clear and the ability to locate a, the uh, outline of the body or the sense of the body in space is lost and you're just this vibrating energy. People react to that differently. Sometimes it's quite frightening that, that that's happening. I know in the first couple of times it happened to me, I was quite disturbed by completely dissolving into energy. But uh, after a while, you acclimatize to it, and it's just part of the ordinary nature of practicing. Uh, and actually, it's uh, lively and uh, um, I find often amusing in the way that it, it forms. But then you're sort of spit out of that. The, the ability to concentrate completely vanishes and you come into this place of, uh, it's called the knowledge of the miseries where you really have to look at how you hold the experiences of uh, self, how you hold the experience of the desire for permanency, for safety and, and, uh, and this belief that you're gonna be able to live in this body uh, forever. Christian? Maybe this is not an answerable question, but is it that is it the sort of knowledge of all that that prevents concentration? Or, or is it something else? It, like, is there an order to that? Um, I don't know the answer to that, really. Um, I don't think I've even ever asked it. Um, um, how long that dissolution stage lasts varies quite quite a bit from a from a few moments to a few hours for longer than a day, and then um, I've always <laughs> thought of it as the divine joke of all of this, right? <laughs> It's such an exquisite state uh, that precedes that. Then you're dumped into this place where it really is kind of muddy and um, dissatisfying. Uh, um, and I guess I would have thought of it as simply a, a, the amount of energy that that takes no longer being available. So it doesn't happen, but I don't know.
fear, misery, disgust are the English words that are translated typically fearfulness that you realize that actually the sense of self is uh, a sensing experience. It's not permanent. There's no location for it. It doesn't really exist beyond uh, uh, construction in the mind. Uh, impermanence, nothing is actually going to last. Nothing is safe. Uh, nothing is enduring from the tiniest macro level to all of these macro constructions. Um, there's a, a quality of ease and liberation in that. You don't have to preserve anything because nothing lasts anyway. Uh, and it puts you at this road, this fork in the road. One, one direction is nihilism and one direction is this willingness to fully engage even though you know it's temporary. This works well both at the micro and the macro level. You rush in, uh, I say rush in, I don't really mean that. I think you should go in a deliberate way in connecting to people around you, to creating a, a social network, but you go into that knowing that it's temporary. Um, you value each interaction because there's no guarantee that there'll be another one, even though you're uh, at an ordinary level uh, able to navigate relationships, navigate uh, places to live, navigate places to work. Um, um, misery is often associated with the, uh, the, the sadness that comes about from pushing through the illusion of of this solidness, this, this safety, uh, this uh, permanency, the sense of security. And then you you come into the the nature of being in in the body, which will grow old, get sick and die, which uh, sometimes you get what you want, but you still lose it. Sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you have to put up with things that you would rather not have to. Uh, and then there's this undercurrent, uh, the desire uh, to be delivered from suffering that um, pulls you out of this into reobservation, which is the 10th stage where you're actually deeply integrating the nature of the human condition so that uh, the fact that there's no self anymore no longer causes suffering. The fact that things are impermanent no longer causes suffering. The fact that you're living in a human body no longer causes you suffering. Although in my experience, you can pick the suffering back up at any time. And it's just as vital as it ever was. <laughs> then you sort of come out on this plateau uh, of equanimity, I like to call it, insight knowledge of equanimity toward phenomena is what it's called in the, in the map that you, you really do operate from this basis of um, knowing uh, the nature of the human condition. And you, you really do at a deep level uh, understand that that is how it is and that there's no real way to be uh, free of that. Um, we have in Buddhism, of course, all of these constructs around rebirth and uh, not uh, and escaping rebirth uh, through the process of liberation. Um, 
if you look at the Theravada map, it's a it's a four path model based on the eradication of the ten fetters. Uh, the first is stream entry. The second is a uh, a once returner, the third is a non returner, and the fourth is an arahat. Um, in each uh, movement from um, uh, path to path, uh, you cycle through this map. Um, and so uh, the stages at the end are really about understanding that you've come through the first part of the path and you're on the plateau of equanimity. And then uh, what arises is the, the knowledge that uh, the fruition experience or the cessation experience could happen. And then in some sense, there's the knowledge that it's going to happen. And then there's a break in consciousness because cessation includes the cessation of awareness. And then you come out of the cessation experience uh, and the, the the sense of self and world reassembles, and then you have uh, knowledge that cessation has happened, a knowledge which is knowledge of fruition, knowledge of path, whether you take another path or you don't take another path, depending on what's been eradicated. And then you come into an understanding of what uh, nirvana is or liberation is. And what liberation is then is the removing of all of the defilements, removing of all of the misunderstandings, and uh, being able to abide in uh, the true nature of the human experience uh, continuously without interruption. So that's the intention of the path. In stream entry, which is uh, the first time through, you eradicate the first three fetters, which are um, knowledge in the, or the belief in self, the fetter of self, the fetter of belief in religious ceremony as the path to enlightenment and the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. Doubt. Um, being the skeptical doubt that the path does lead to fruition. If you've had the direct experience of fruition, then uh, that doubt is eradicated because you, you have the experience. The second path uh, is called one's returner, which refers to the number of times that you're reincarnated if you uh, take that path. The first path, uh, stream entry, it said that you reincarnate only seven more times. Understand in the Buddhist cosmology, you've been reincarnated endless, countless times, that you've stepped on every square inch of the earth, that everyone has been your mother, been your father, been your child, been your brother, been your sister, because there's been so many iterations, so many uh, uh, reincarnations. But when you get to the second path, you're a once returner, which means only one more uh, life, one more reincarnation. Remember that uh, uh, this is the cessation of the path of suffering. And what that means is it's the cessation of rebirth and death, the cycle of rebirth and death. 
So the purpose in the Theravada path is to end the cycle of rebirth, which you do through the uh, attaining these stages of liberation. This is different than the Mahayana path where you take the Bodhisattva vow to be uh, reincarnated until all sentient beings are liberated. But in the Theravada path, it really is just your personal liberation that leads to uh, the end of your own suffering. And, and there, there isn't that attention to uh, all of us together in it. Uh, in the second path, you weaken craving and aversion, but you don't eradicate it. And in the third path, uh, non-returner, you're no longer reincarnated. You eliminate craving and aversion. Um, I think what's interesting to pay attention to um, in uh, American Buddhism and particularly in the Theravada world, uh, an open discussion of your own attainments is is quite uh, common, even though uh, in uh, the more traditional Asian practices, it's considered really bad manners to do that. So in that sort of American thing about being, uh, you know, uh, recklessly open or forcefully open. <laughs> uh, when I went to Myanmar, uh, I, I like to travel with somebody who can speak the language. Uh, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, I don't really even know the alphabet, uh, the Miramar alphabet. And when you get outside of the, the main cities, uh, none of the signs are in English. They're only in uh, uh, the Miramar language. So I like to travel with somebody who speaks the language. And he was telling me that uh, when they train people uh, to be uh, uh, guides, that you have to learn the culture of the people that you're guiding because they're so distinct. So for instance, Americans demand that you tell them intimate details about your family life and, and what your experience of being alive is and, and what your relationships are like. Uh, and that if you're unwilling to express that, which is not the typical culture of uh, Miramar, uh, they feel offended that you haven't said it to them. And, the, and the, the relationship doesn't work in terms of you being successful in, in uh, uh, guiding them through the, the country. But that if you were to make the mistake of doing that with, uh, of being open and revealing to uh, uh, people from Germany, they would be offended by it because that isn't their culture. They don't do that. And they, they expect you to withhold that information uh, from them. Uh, and if they uh, inquire about it, that it be very limited and not particularly intimate. And so he was describing to me how it's almost like getting certified in the person, the type of culture that you're going to guide um, because they're so different. And so, uh, the, for instance, people from Spain and people from America are, are similar enough that that would be a, a common grouping. You'd be a guide for people from America and you'd be a guide for from people from Spain, but you probably wouldn't 
be a guide for people from Germany or uh, some of the northern uh, countries there. Um, forgetting why I wanted to talk about that. Um, oh, I know. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I think is interesting to, to understand about uh, um, practice and what practice tends to lead to, uh, particularly in the American culture where we're uh, forthright and uh, claim attainments, is that uh, often the claims aren't reliable or the understanding of the person isn't complete enough for them to really know whether they're there or not. And so it's useful to have a dialogue with a teacher who can investigate or with you uh, your understanding of what's coming up in the practice and what that actually means. Um, but then also to understand how that would uh, be experienced, um, what shifts uh, uh, in uh, consciousness, what shifts in awareness you would expect to, to see in somebody who uh, um, had the attainments, whether they claim they have them or they don't claim it, so that you have a sense of where they're at. So you really know the terrain of, of the kind of practice that you do and where it tends to lead so that you can navigate it. Uh, so the eradication of craving and aversion is an interesting point for non-returners um, I, I've met many people that have had stream entry in the classical sense uh, and the effects of that. Um, one of the effects that's quite common is you have stream entry and then you're plunged into the most intense experience of craving, the most intense experience of aversion, and you uh, work tirelessly to uh, weaken them because they're uh, the in, the intensity of the experiences um, uh, so has such an effect on the on your uh, uh, ordinary life. Um, so the weakening of craving and aversion is something that's identifiable, and I see that quite often too. But I can't really say that I've ever experienced somebody who's completely eradicated craving and aversion. Um, it still seems to come up. Uh, and then uh, the fourth path in the Theravada model is the eradication of the remaining five fetters. So uh, restlessness and agitation, uh, the craving for material existence, the craving for immaterial existence, and then the last one is uh, the hindrance of conceit. Christian? Do you think that all of these fetters are like conceptualized in a way that makes sense to, to, to think that householders should be getting rid of them? Or is this really something that's like particular for monastics? And I guess I'm wondering about your opinion for like, should someone really strive to get rid of all of these things? Or is this something, or is this some of this stuff more appropriate for like a monastic? Um, I haven't noticed the monastic population being any better at this than the householder population. 
I guess what I'm wondering is does eradicating some of these fetters actually could it make someone less capable at sort of making their way in the world? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, it could make you less caught up in the in the the social valuing of activities in the world uh, and more interested in actually what's uh, satisfying, what actually has value and meaning. Uh, and most of the time, I would guess that that, that is uh, away from what's valued in our culture. And so uh, uh, your experience and the experience of people that are valuing of the, of the traditional pathways of success in our culture might be quite different. They might, um, you know, see that you're slacking or uninterested in uh, things that uh, they find very important and necessary. Well, I'm already slacking, so I think this also points to the direction of who comes to practice, which I also think is kind of interesting. Um, when I first started teaching, this was very pronounced uh, and I didn't really know how to manage it. So it just, it created chaos and conflict in all of the classes I taught, which was uh, this bell curve of people's uh, uh, capacities and at one end was people who hardly functioned, who were coming to practice because their suffering was so great. And they, they were, in some sense, because meditation was so far out of the, the mainstream, grasping at straws for anything that would help them. And at the other end of the spectrum was these super accomplished people that uh, went after things and got them over and over again. The people in the middle didn't come because they were still engaged in the ordinary activity of family and career and uh, advancement. The people at the, the very accomplished end of things weren't any happier, and yet they had been able to achieve all of the things that conventional society said would make them happy, and they still weren't. And the people at the lower end couldn't get into the game to see whether it could make them happy. Stas? Just following up on Christian's comment with the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, you know, transitioning in life and going from doing a lot of retreats to maybe doing one a year or less. And now all of a sudden this whole endeavor seems quite, you know, out of reach. Mm. Um, so after my stream entry experience, I left my career and took a, a, a dopey job, but I could go on four retreats a year if I kept that job and I couldn't if I kept my career and I thought that I would rather uh, explore this than my career, which wasn't that meaningful to me. And so, uh, you know, I, I worked in movies anyway. Um, and I did that for about five years or so. And then, uh, and that was enough. And then um, started to do other things as the, uh, as my desire to explore other things arose. Uh, 
Um, I think also the, the vagaries of our economy, um, the without the recession in 2007 and eight, I wouldn't be a meditation teacher because I wouldn't have needed to. Um, so it's, you know, you go along with your life and it takes you in different directions and can you be present for it and understand it? When I first started teaching the, the I would give the instructions for the class and in the next class, the super achievers would have done everything many, many times, really had a good sense of it. And the people who barely functioned would have been done very little of it and not really be able to function. And the, the impatience of the people that function well, because they wanted to go faster and faster and faster. And, the, and we would leave behind the people that couldn't function very well. Uh, and so there was that conflict. It seemed unfair to each group that they would be burdened with the, the, the qualities of the uh, other group. Um, you have your life and what's important is that you turn your attention to your life and to the things that are interesting and meaningful to you and that you're able as a householder to put together a structure that supports that so that you can explore and find these things out that you need to know so that you find meaningfulness in this. Um, and I think that if you practice quite a bit, it removes a lot of the uh, imposition that our society has in the way that it values things and you can shift into uh, touching what, it, what is actually meaningful to you. Um, I'm going to be 68 this year, and um, I've been through different periods in my life where a lot of the people that I know have died. So in my teen years, it was mainly uh, drunken driving and uh, overdoses uh, and, uh, and suicide. Those were the big three experiences of death. And then in my 20s, uh, AIDS was the big thing, and that was uh, an amazing uh, change to the, the sense of uh, possibility. And, uh, and then uh, in my uh, 30s, we all got very interested in succeeding at something and, and finding meaning in that. And then uh, and that carried us into our 40s and uh, the opioid epidemic came up and that, that also started um, that process of a lot of people dying um, and uh, seeing you know, the, the structures of society that support that as a kind of population control. Um, but now at this age, what's beginning to happen is that the people that I, I've known for you know decades uh, who are a little older than me are beginning to die of old age. It's quite a startling change in the perspective of things. Um, so people that I've met, I met in my 20s are now in their 70s and uh, uh, 
my friend said to me, um, I was so outraged that I got cancer. Uh, and then I realized it was a normal lifespan. <laughs> it wasn't early. It, it wasn't uh, premature in any way. It's, it's what happens to most people. Um, and so it sets in uh, an idea about the temporary nature of things that it, it's hard to really come into uh, earlier than that. Um, the nature of the body aging. Um, I think that if you can tune into the things that make life really interesting, really meaningful, then you, the indignities of aging don't bother you so much because you're really interested in continuing on with your exploration and and you you accommodate the uh, the 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 gradual limiting. I was talking to my friend uh, Vincent, uh, and uh, he had. Uh, eye surgery and uh, they removed one of the lenses but they only did one at an eye at a time you know with cataract surgery they put a lens in and then you can see and he says that if he opens one eye it's like a platinum print it's just radiant and clear and then if he closes that eyes and opens the other eye it's like a sepia sort of romantic uh a total different color spectrum, which he just had assumed was the way it was because the eye changes so slowly that the uh, filtering of the, the lens with uh, cataract in it completely changes anything. And then he said what was really cool was to open both eyes at the same time and watch the mind wrestle with how to create conceptual reality from the two very different inputs, um, which is really quite an interesting uh, understanding of the nature of all of this, right? We create these experiences based on the sense data that we get. And uh, when we live long enough, this, the quality of the sense data changes as the quality of the body changes. And uh, because it's so incremental, we, we hardly notice it until there's a an abrupt uh, shift. Um, what matters to you? And can you organize your life in such a way that you spend uh, most of your time or as much of, of your time as you can engaged in that? That's what I think uh, this process uh, of liberation is. And that it's easy to get sidetracked on uh, ideas of what it is uh, and uh, not touch into that uh, quality. Um, what do you say we do a little bit of meditation? So I was thinking maybe that we would do some loving kindness practice. 
beginning with an easy person and then shifting into practice for self. Everybody settled into the meditation, no questions. So how did that go? Good enough? Christian? I get like, what I believe is really into the mind state. Like my, my face, it almost feels like it hurts. Like I'm, I think I'm like smiling, but does that mean I need to back up and find a more relaxed kind of way of doing it? Or is that just part of- uh, Is it muscle pain or is it uh, energy? feels like my face is just like stretched out, but maybe I'm kind of, um, maybe I don't have clarity, like with the energy, like how you can kind of have a headache when you're concentrated, but when you like stop meditating, it goes away. It's not like a real headache. So it's, I don't know. So a lot of people report that the PT is contractive. And so you have this intense contractive energy because views are often associated with seeing they're they're often up sort of in the upper part of the the lower part of the forehead or around the eyes and a lot of people uh, report almost like a contractive spot where the third eye would be as a, an experience of energy that would be different than say of, of the physical effort of holding a smile or something like that and that you just attempt to come into equanimity with and then if you do it begins to be a more um, there tends to be more movement to it so it's less distressing to hold but it, there needs to be a little bit more clarity there mm -hmm. someone else all right Thank you all for coming. Oops, uh, Juliet. It's me, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Juliet screaming in the background. I don't know what's up with her, but um, uh, is, is it okay to do this practice but address yourself in the third person? How do you mean? May you? I'm sorry, not in the second person, not like you. Yeah, not third person, sorry. I meant the second person. Like, like I find it easier to instead of saying like, may I, I just feel like really self-indulgent. <laughs> you oh. see that? <laughs> it's just like, so, but if I remember, if I imagine myself, it's still myself, but just like, you know, like I'm seeing myself and I say that to myself, like that works so much better. Okay. Yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, it, it, it is a, in some ways an insight into the nature of self since you're not identified directly with the experience. You're more in a viewing of experience and then that creates a separate uh, a different experience of self than one that you would personally identify with. So that's totally fine. So it's it, but does that make a difference though in the results or uh, no. like in the effect? No, the intention is still the same. 
the object of meditation is the mind state and everything else drifts into the background except for the awareness of the view. Uh, and so even the sense of who you're intending it for drifts into the background as you become more and more concentrated. Okay, thank you. Someone else? All right. So uh, Saturday, we don't have a day long, but uh, on the following Saturday, we have the, the third of the three days on the level one. And then two weeks from there, we have the meditation uh, and attachment for relationships class, which is about collaborative relationship skills. Um, in September, we're starting a level two class. And so a registration for both of those are up on the website. We, we're going to have an in-person retreat in December for a week, December 26th to uh, January 1st. Um, there's, uh, I think, uh, 12 spots left in that. We've, we opened the registration this week, so it's, it's filling up quickly. If you're interested in that, take a look at that. It, that's also there on the website. I offer the class on a Donna basis, which means I teach the class uh, freely, but I'm hoping that you'll make a donation to help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. There's links to make a donation to us on the website or in the email that you may have received. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate your uh, practice and we'll see you again soon, I hope somewhere on the path. Bye now.